for me, I think sending someone to an ayahuasca experience without having care on the back end can be practically cruel. People need care in, in the aftermath. A good therapeutic experience has care before, during, and after. There's a continuity. And ideally with the same person or people. To me, an integration is essentially about becoming whole again and recognizing the innate nature of the wholeness that already lives in you and moving forward whatever information you have. So for me, that meant throwing my, oh, my scale away from that one journey that I was madly addicted to. For me, I have been blessed to have very clear directions from medicine experiences, but then to be able to talk about them and, of course, to, to sit with them because our experiences deserve our time and attention in the aftermath. So really allowing yourself the spaciousness after an experience to sit with, to meditate on, to write about, to dance, to listen to music, to kind of rest with. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, joining me is my friend, Lauren Taus, psychedelic therapist who specializes in trauma and addiction treatment, host of the Embodied Life podcast, yoga teacher, meditation guide, and so much more, even though that's a very long list already. As an activist and an advocate for a safer world, she's dedicated to building bridges in the Middle East. She co-curated a delegation of Israeli and Palestinian peace activists to travel to Dharamsala and meet with the Dalai Lama to learn how to integrate nonviolent approaches to conflict in the Holy Land. Lauren is also a founding member of Cosmic Camels, a camp at Burning Man, comprised of individuals from countries in the Middle East whose passport preclude them from visiting one another's homes. Camp members explore ways in which the 10 principles of Burning Man can be applied to conflict zones. You'll also get to see Lauren featured in the upcoming documentary, Ordinary Trip. Lauren, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to Field Tripping. Thanks so much for having me, Ronan. So you just got back from the world-famous Burning Man. Do indulge. I have never been uh, and I've only started to see some pictures of it. So I'd love to know, how was it? How long have you been going? What made you go in the first place? Burning Man is a wild cornucopia of everything, everywhere, all at once. And it's probably the most incredible party on the planet. It's very international. It's uh, dusty and hot and hard. And by that, more magical. This particular year was my fourth. So I I feel still like a, a baby at the burn. And I've, I've also been to Midburn in Israel because they have these burns in other countries. And, you know, this concept of care and connection and collapsing boundaries has been exported internationally. It's interesting for me. I appreciated America more. And even the drive from Los Angeles into Nevada is full of the most stunning landscapes. And as someone who sometimes feels not so proud of where we are in the United States. It reminded me of the beauty of this country and of some of of what we actually do stand for underneath all of the the fighting and and the difficulties that, that we uniquely encounter in this country. My time in the dust this year was really special. Of course, over the last two years, there wasn't an official burn and I didn't attend the renegade one. So I really was tracking my own progress, Ronan. I I was feeling into how much I've grown over the last three years. And Burning Man is also a place that whatever content a person swims in is going to immediately surface. So whatever grief, whatever rage, whatever, whatever fear, whatever insecurities, whatever is to celebrate, it's, it's more potent and it's quite psychedelic in that way. For me, usually arrive onto the playa and confronted with my own insecurities. I I kind of have an inner dialogue that sounds like, this is stupid, everyone's cooler than me, everyone's prettier than me, their outfits are better than mine, and why did I come? And I still had that experience, but it was so much shorter. And I just know that doing the work that I am in the space of facilitating has created radical tectonic shifts inside of my own being that allowed for so much more presence and play and connection. And I'd say my favorite parts of this year were 
mostly just, just spending time with people that I love and meeting other ones. And I, I drop in really deeply with people and really quickly. And I feel quite blessed to have the ability to disarm people. And so many of them were in tears and telling me of their stories and reminded of why I do what I do and how important it is and how we all as human beings struggle. And the struggle is, is really in many ways sacred. It can be transmuted into something really, really beautiful. Another real highlight for me was the, the Philharmonic at the temple. In the middle of the dust, there's all these incredible musicians and, and of all kinds, right? There's, there's pianists, there's opera singers, there's cellists, there's you know, epic DJs, and, and there's a Philharmonic. And I was there in a really silly, playful, uh, amplified state. And, and I wrote a letter to my mom and my mother passed away seven years ago. My experience is that death is a great, great, great teacher of life. And I have more to, to grow in my relationship and connection with my mom. And it felt really, really special to, to write her a letter there. And, and I kind of started high up on this be wooden beam that was part of the structure of the temple. And, and just it kind of flowed through me. And there was this sort of silly moment where I passed the pen back to my friend and just sort of stood there. And they said, wait, I need it again. And I had an addendum and asked a guy to move so that I could literally write it all the way down to the ground. And, you know, to know that it's burnt, right? Everything is, is finite. And everything that is created at Burning Man is ultimately taken down and dismantled or burnt. That finitude in everything, and certainly there, grants it such a, a sacred, precious quality. Thank you for sharing all of that. A lot in there uh, to unpack. I, I appreciated you using the word, uh, your ability to disarm people. And I think you have a magnificent quality uh, to do so. I mean, we only met in person once, but immediately you put me at ease. So I just want to recognize that in you. I also appreciated it, uh, how you raised that almost in perfect juxtaposition to talking about driving uh, in America, where disarming people is probably something that the country needs with a, an urgent degree. But I would love to dive into a, a couple of things, which is, first off, Burning Man is, I feel like, I feel like people talk about getting drunk as you see the real person. You know, there's a lot of debate about that, but it's like when someone's drunk, you see the real Lord, you see the real Rodin or whatever when someone's drunk. I feel like... I don't know if Burning Man is like seeing the real of someone or if people play caricatures of who they want to be for a little while, but I'm curious to know who are you uh, on the playa? Like how is Lauren on the playa different from Lauren sitting uh, in California talking to me? Ronan, there's not a huge difference between me on the playa and me in real life. And one of the things that I personally want to, in the word that's coming to me is play with more, is the theater of life, right? I've, I've always been much more comfortable with the interior and the invitation to be more kind of fabulous on the exterior and to wear these wild costumes and play in this theater is, is more of an edge for me. But I'm the same. I, I'm really, I'm me. And you know, I, I mentioned my mom earlier at the temple and and I had the opportunity on Playa to to bring Rick Doblin to Maxa, which was a, it's a Mexico City based camp. And we had a huge camp this year, it was a little village, 270 people, which is an astronomic amount out there. And Rick and I had a conversation, I, I hosted it, and we spoke about psychedelics and the family, which is really what I care so deeply about. I care about the family system, which in so many ways has been disintegrated. How we talk and what we talk about and what we don't talk about. And simultaneously, the conversation was about group healing and systems healing and family healing. And that's a real passion of mine that I'm wanting to explore even more because dyadic work, which I love and believe in, can be collusive with people's uh, trauma-based pathology and keep people in the same cognitive problematic loops that they came seeking support with in the first place. So there's so much medicine that can happen in being witnessed and witnessing and in being in support of one another, which is another huge thing at Burning Man. It's like 
a place where this year, this the number was, I think, 57,000, 20,000 less than previous years. And everyone is hosting <clears throat> the proverbial party and supporting one another. That is, is, a, is a thing that we need to take out of the dust and bring into our daily lives. I, I'm really passionate about the work that can happen therapeutically in, in group constellations and outside of the one-on-one. Lots in that statement too. <laughs> um, just for clarification, you said something that uh, I, I actually struggled and had to, as you were talking, try to listen and, and try to unpack, but you said something about the dyadic nature of therapy colludes with trauma. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying it. Can you just unpack that a little bit so everyone who's listening who may not necessarily have as much of a grounding in therapy or such words uh, can understand exactly what you're trying to say there? Because I think there's a lot of important stuff there, but I think it's important that we all understand what, what we're saying. Here. Yes. The, the, the clinical jargon that I used is that the dyadic org can be collusive in people's trauma-based pathology, right? So, so let me walk us back a few steps. I believe that the human experience in many ways is traumatizing, irrespective of how pleasant your individual life can is. There's trauma around us, and and we're not not impacted by it. So we are really all part of one shared experience. And when we partner with psychoactive substances to clean, clear, to explore, to discover, recover, to heal, we immediately open the doors to intergenerational, transpersonal, and collective content. So we're immediately accessing the reality of our interconnection. None of us are having a discrete experience. None of us. And we live in a world that is hyper-obsessed with individualism. It's me, 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 all day. Sounds like a Muppet show. Right? And the me, me, me show is painful. And supports comparison and competition. Even though I went on a beach walk this morning, Ronan, and I was feeling like so happy and proud and excited about what's alive in my world. And in the moments that I go into comparison, I feel often less than. But if I stay with, with what's alive in my, in my space and in the gratitude for what is so abundant here now for me, but being in, in that kind of Presence allows for more joyful living. Now, when you take a person into individual therapy because perhaps they've been wounded, and so often people come to therapy because they're in pain, right? And therapy can be a place for people to just go and grow. They don't need to have an open wound to to seek support. We all need support. But when someone is coming with an, an open wound, so often they're processing it in the therapeutic dynamic and not necessarily in the dynamic that caused them the pain. So they may not be actually talking to who they need to talk to. And so often in my practice and in my experience, I've heard these words, you're the only person I feel safe with. That doesn't work. Now, I'm grateful that I can provide that. And that's a big thing. But I want to widen it. Widening it absolutely means including other people. And generally speaking, some of our our most intimate challenges are born in our, our family architecture. And so for me, all work is family work. The problem doesn't just impact the individual. So working within just the individual constellation actually can support deeper levels of isolation, depending on how the work happens. But, you know, for me, in the way that I practice, I end up, like, I I have a lot of paperwork around permission to to speak with with other people and and to then support conversations that need to happen between them. If I'm going to simplify it, it's therapy can be a useful tool, but it can actually exacerbate the problem by making it... um, Exactly. As you said, you feel safe with your therapist, but if you don't translate that to anything outside of the therapeutic walls, then there's value in it, but it's going to be of limited utility is, is kind of it. In a nutshell. And a lot of conventional treatment is also re-traumatizing. You know, again, if, if the experience of life is traumatic, we have to tread so gently within those realms of content, right? Like we need to really check in, like, is it okay to talk about this right now? 
and let the, the client determine the speed with which we move. It raises a question in my head, which is, if life is traumatizing, what is the purpose of trauma, right? Like if you think about this from a purely evolutionary biology perspective, trauma serves a function. There's got to be a why, right? There's got to be a why somewhere underlying it. Either it's to enhance our fitness, uh, to procreate from that lens, or there's something that we're not looking at. So where does it sit in, in your mind? Again, I, I mentioned earlier that all things are in relation to that, which they're not, right? So pain and pleasure are in direct relationship. And how do we use our painful experiences to fertilize more joy? I have composted so much pain in my life and, and have confronted it directly and allowed for the pain to literally move through my body. Life is an action sport. It's not a cognitive exercise. And we don't think feelings. Okay. They have a somatic counterpart. Every emotion has a somatic counterpart, like the body and, and my, my therapy practice, my training program is embodied life. It's going in, uh, in the way out is in. And ultimately it will allow for more freedom. Triggers are our teachers and pain is ultimately a pathway to more freedom. I, you know, I buried my sister when I was 20. My mom died seven years ago, as I mentioned. My mom was a complex PTSD case and she was very dissociated and then developed an addiction. And, uh, and I say that with love and compassion and, and with forgiveness and care and an understanding of like why that happened uh, and compassion for me that like, you know, little Lauren in many ways didn't get some of what she needed. And in the ways in which our parents are failing to parent us, they're parenting us to parent ourselves and, and to seek that parenting also in good relations. We also love homeostasis, all systems, including an individual system, like your singular body and also the family system, the community system, the national system. Like we want things to stay the same because change is disruption. And that homeostasis can be painful, but we'll choose it over the change oftentimes, unless we're really efforting a conscious interruption. Also, if we're able to kind of widen the aperture to see more and to understand, wait, maybe there's a better way of being. And perhaps like this pain that I'm experiencing can be processed. Maybe I do have the wherewithal and the inner resourcing or can develop the inner resourcing to move in and through. But to me, pain is a part of it. And, and I've developed less of a charge around the concept. What do you mean by that? Okay, okay here's pain. Oh, oh, okay. Here's loneliness. Oh, here's grief. Okay. Hi. I can breathe with this. I can see this as sacred. I can know that everything is always changing. I can know that it's not going to consume me. Yeah. I think, I mean, that, that last point I think is, um, is, is something that resonates with me, which is on one hand, on a very academic level, I can see pain is just part of the experience. One thing I can say with certainty is that we are here to experience life. That is it. That's one thing we can say with certainty is that we're here to experience. And, and Tom Robbins has a quote where he's like, give me life, all of life, the miserable as well as the superb. And, and academically taking it from that lens, it's like, okay, yeah, pain is just part of the experience. And so we should actually indulge it, like experience pain, because if nothing else, it's part of the story, like any great Hero's journey has to have the ups and the downs to be interesting. Ronan, I'm looking at one of my favorite books, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, which of course just lives on my desk. And there's one short little, little clip that I want to share. Uh, it's so good. It's so good. It says, your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Ellipses. Much of your pain is self-chosen. It is the bitter potion by which the physician within you heals your sick self. Therefore, trust the physician and drink his remedy in silence and tranquility. Like the pain is the pathway to ultimately pleasure and freedom, as I mentioned. And I've been able to clear the road and, and heal and feel into my own healing. And through that, offering with my clinical skills and trainings and medicine work the same to those that I'm lucky enough to serve. That's a beautiful, beautiful quote. 
It's interesting that the thematics, even in Burning Man, it's it's all kind of getting at the same thing in some levels, which is in Burning Man, you go and people put on costume and maybe Lauren shows up mostly as Lauren and, and Lauren on the playa is not very different than Lauren, Lauren on the California coast. But for a lot of people, and, and you even talked about the importance of the role of theater in feeling our way to a new existence, right? It's, it's play. It's like we're, we're pushing the boundaries of what's possible. And we do it because there's a safety in doing it through theater. You know, there's a safety in doing it on the playa where you can pick up and leave and no one has to know about it at all, but you get to kind of push the limits. I, I liken it even to watching movies. Like some people get annoyed that movies can be so emotionally manipulative. I mean, it may be manipulative. It's no manip- more manipulative than theater or anything like where we're acting outside of our normal selves. It's still an exercise to feel new things, to feel deeper, to feel more anger, more sadness, more love, more happiness. And and the more you practice that, the more you kind of push the boundaries of it, the more life you let in. Literally, your universe expands in proportion to these experiences, even if they're not real, so to speak, because they're done in a controlled environment like theater or Burning Man or, or you know, movie. Well, Burning Man is hardly a controlled environment. One of my favorite gifts from psychedelic experiencing is the, the way in which it's taught me again, which I think I was taught to stop in some ways. I think our cultural conditioning stops our imagination. My experiencing with psychedelics has validated the realms of imagination and my dreams. And, and children have it so easily. And it's fun to see kids at Burning Man. I think there's, a, there's an idea that all people do at, at the burn is party. And th- that's not true, but it's, it's really a place to feel. And it's not a controlled environment. I mean, it's a specific environment and it's a time constrained space and place, but it's, it's wild. And, and again, it can be painful out there too, which I think makes it more of a party. <laughs> Totally. And and you're right. Controlled is not the right word. It, it was more that it is free from the normal attachments of everyday life. And in that sense, it's it's kind of controlled in that the consequences of what happens in theater or on Burning Man don't necessarily translate to your Monday to Friday kind of experience. So yes, 100% yes. agreed in that. Where I was going with that, though, is like pain in many ways is is the same, which is like the depths of pain also stretch us, right? And and stretching us in one direction. It's it's kind of like going way off topic here. Sorry, but it's kind of like space time, which is like you can't stretch in one direction without affecting the overall shape of your experience, right? And so opening up the capacity to experience and move through pain opens up the capacity. And, and I know this is like going back to like, well, if God is good, why does he permit suffering? It's the exact equation, which is like it stretches, right? Like in any direction, it it stretches you. Theater, it's it's a it's a form of theater in some respects of like pushing you to different levels of intensity, which expands the scope of all of this. And the thing I fall prey to, and you touched on it, was like, but pain can be consuming, right? It can be like, oh my god, this pain. If I feel it, if I let it in, it's just like I. I mean, we try to control it because there's that fear. At least I have the fear of like. If I let it in too much, it's going to overwhelm me and and I can't control it. And then I'm going to disappear and, and then there's dread and all that kind of stuff that goes with it. So it, it's a really interesting conversation about let's examine our relationship with pain and, and suffering and, and not see it as necessarily good or bad, but part of the experience, which can be taken however we consciously choose to direct the emotionality. The most painful things I've experienced have absolutely unlocked my greatest joys. And, you know, people want happiness. We want, we want to be happy. And happiness, I like to say, is entirely contingent on our ability to play the rest of the emotional keyboard. There's four primary emotions. There's fear, anger, sadness, and joy. And pain is, is sort of in, in fear, anger, and sadness. And we have a, an allergy to fear and anger and sadness. And the more comfortable we can get with riding those tides inside and sharing them, right? Like the, to let them be expressed because what we don't express, we suppress and repress. And that shows up as disease and disease of all kinds. And the symptoms are actually like 
signs of health because your body's saying, hey, I need some attention, right? But we're taught not to feel, Ronan. And we're taught to like be in fields of domination within our own bodies. And that's again where the feelings live. So to welcome a person back and to create safety inside and, you know, the expansiveness of vulnerability, which is actually such a strength. I mean, so beautiful for me. I had many conversations on the playa with like big, beautiful, strong, like tattooed, badass looking dudes and had them like in tears. And it was, I'm like, yeah, good for you. <laughs> Let's like let it out. I think the most important thing too is like a person expressing anger. And it's like easy to say, not always easy to body is like if a person is expressing anger or hurt, it's like all it's showing you something about them, but somewhere along the lines we're taught to internalize it being like, Oh, I'm bad. I did something wrong. Whereas like the truth is maybe there's a piece of it. And like, I need to go through the positive shame aspect of it, of being like, Oh yeah, that was wrong. I didn't want to do that. Not because I'm a bad person, but because I made a mistake and I can do better next time. But we internalize it as being like, Oh, angry at me. I fucked up. There's something wrong with me that gets to our shame. And then like we internalize it. They don't feel received and it creates like a very vicious cycle, you know, um, of, of ugliness. So this goes back to like, I think your, your ultimate point of it's, it's a constellation of experiences, right? It's like all the people in our lives that touch us in some way, you know, are, are part of the story and have to be part of the narrative. And with enough ego strength, a person is able to take the feedback or to recognize, you know, as you said, they can go through the positive shame and then be like, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I didn't understand. I didn't see that. Yes, I, I realized that I caused you harm and I'm sorry. And when there isn't enough ego strength, then we start having some bigger problems. Totally. One of the questions this raised for me, um, you use the word struggle. It's one of the conversations that I've had with my teacher, Erwin, where it's like, we have a struggle paradigm where we value struggle. And it's kind of perverse, right? Like, you know, we don't appreciate something unless we worked hard for it. We struggled for it. Shouldn't it be really the opposite, which is like, if it comes elegantly and easily, then we should appreciate it more because like, it's just like, it's so simple. There's the elegance, there's the beauty. It's like, this is perfect, right? Why in your mind do we, do we, fetishize struggle in our society and what can we do about it? And, and that's not to say that not all struggle is good. There's a, there's a role for it, but I think it's probably overemphasized right now. I think it's part of our cultural conditioning. You know, it's the Protestant work ethic. It's the glorification of hustle, of hyper productivity. You know, I, I work with so many high performing, high achieving people. And so often they're not feeling good. And they can have all the material success in the world and not feel any of it in a way of, of, of goodness inside, right? And again, high-performing people, what are they doing? They're performing. So often it's shame that, that's motivating the performance and fueling the success. And can they relax back into their being without the need to succeed in quotes or to perform or to uh, prove themselves, right? It's our culture. And so, so we need to redefine within our own system what it means to be successful, what it means to live well. And, and that's a, a larger task that I think we should all take on, but ultimately that lives in each individual's heart. Like what's enough? Well, I'm going to pose those first two questions uh, back to you, which is, it's not a perfect answer and no one expects you to have the perfect answer except me. I expect you to have the perfect answer perfectly articulated right now is, you know, what is a well-lived life? What does that look like? My dad says he's proud of me for going in the direction of my own direction and learning to trust myself and trust my intuition, which I believe is divine direction learning to make home in my body and in my heart has allowed me to befriend and, and partner with my mind in a good way. And from that place of wholeness inside, which we are all whole, it's true. There's, there's a wholeness to each of us, no matter how proverbially, proverbially broken we might feel or be from, from the harshness of life experience, we're still whole. And, and from a place of wholeness, how well can I or you connect with other people with 
the planet? How well do we live in relationship with nature, with our own human nature and with nature outside of us, whether that's in the form of other human beings? I like to say humans are my favorite animal. They are 100%. But how well are we in relationship like to ourselves? I love myself. And I marvel at my inner dialogue because I was a walking war zone in my 20s. I was so full of self-judgment and self-hatred and and it was largely, you know, towards my body, but other parts of my being, I'm, you know, I'm now, uh, I'm 40, wild. And, and I've, I've made the journey to my heart and it's made all the difference. And, you know, I still have more conditioning to shed. And I'm committed to doing that. And I can see it more clearly when it comes up in my mind and it feels like splinters and it feels like uncomfortable, but I, I can see it and work with it. And, and I have gratitude for that work, you know, to bring us back to, to better ways of, of deeper alignment and health. Because we're not living in a healthy system at all. I fully agree with that. I think it's actually like a, a good segue, which is when I both share the belief that psychedelics play a role in the conversation. Where did psychedelics enter your life? I was such a good kid. I was a painfully good kid. And I'm in the deepest prayer for a family of my own. And I know you're a dad. And I think being born and having children are the most psychedelic things on planet Earth. So you're definitely tripping, Ronan. And as a good kid, drugs were not on that list. So I was a straight A student, you know, community service queen, nowhere near drugs. Not to say that those things are uh, contraindicated because they're certainly not. But I, I just was, you know, from the just say no era, I was like, that, that's scary. That's bad. That's not for me. And, you know, I remained that way through college and through my, many of the years post-college. My first journey was brought about through my brother. I, I'm so passionate, as I've already mentioned, about family work. And when my brother first invited me, I was like, What? This, this, this is weird. He's like, listen, it's totally safe. It's, it's been really growthful for me. And you totally don't have to go, but you're also very invited, whatever you want. And I had been invited by him several times and said no and said no and said no. And then I said yes. And then last minute would say no. I was just in this sort of like dance of, ah, I don't know about this. And I went the first time I, we had just arrived back from a trip to Israel and my brother was going and I was sort of walking behind him all day. And sort of following along with his ways of eating and not eating and whatever. And he said, you know, you can come, but you don't have to come. And I just followed him around and followed him around all day, all day, all day, and into the evening and into the night and into that first experience. And that first experience was so special to share with him. And we had such precious moments together. We're, we're very close. And it was from that place that I went literally flying on the wings of many, many things in good ways that have shown me and grown me and taught me and helped me and healed me and directed me. And I am forever grateful for that invitation. Are there any particular experiences that stand out where you're just like, oh, how did I, like in the documentary, there's going to, there, there are certainly some moments where it's just like, how did I not see that? I'm 43 years old. How did I miss that being such an influence in my life. Um, and it wasn't, you know, a lot of people have like an expectation that it's a super trippy kind of like, um, you know, you see your dead grandparents come to you like in a total hallucination. It wasn't that at all. It was just like those moments where two neurons connect and you're like, oh shit, how did I miss that? Have there been those experiences for you and, and what came up? And it actually kind of, um, Came, comes back to one of the first questions that I had that I didn't quite pose, but you know, when you were on the burns, like what are what are the insecurities that you're still dealing with to, to this day? And and share as much or, or as little as you want. Well, that first journey that I had with my brother was literally biblical, and I remember laying in his arms and visualizing a caravan of animals and humans in the desert, walking from my mind into my heart. And in this particular container was the idea from this facilitator that there's medicine in the circle, which again, I mentioned that I believe that. 
And I had a conversation with a dear friend who I actually saw out in Burning Man. He's brought all of his children and his parents there. He's amazing. Uh, this was many, many years ago. We're very close still. About, about Israel and about the, the conflict there. And at the time, I, I was um, pretty right-wing. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and I remain very uh, connected to the land, but also with so much more compassion to all of the many people that have for many, many, many uh, millennia called this place home. So I think that initially, that initial experience translated into an understanding that my body is a holy land and that it's complicated and that it's, there's fighting. And subsequent journeys have supported me in befriending my body and in allowing for the judgment to, to fall off more. I had one journey where a dear friend of mine said to me, keep fighting for yourself. Right? We talked about struggle earlier. Keep fighting for yourself. I had an eating disorder really kicked up while my sister was dying. And I was half my size. And if you follow me on social media, you can see that I'm not very big. And I, I really wanted to disappear. I, I, I didn't, I felt ugly. I felt not okay being alive as a human wrapped in skin on planet earth. And so the journey into my own being in form has been thematic for me throughout my experiences. And as a Jewish woman, which you named, one of the aspects of my tradition that I really love and celebrate is that we're supposed to elevate the physical. We're asked to, to celebrate form, to drink wine, to, to have sex, to dress in certain ways that, that are blessed and sacred, not to abdicate form, which I wanted to do. I had a residual piece of my eating disorder in my first ayahuasca experience where I was still weighing myself. And, and to be crass, I wake up in the morning and, uh, you know, try and poop, get naked and get on the scale. And that number branded me as my worth for the day. Any shift from what I thought was okay, and it wasn't like, oh, yay, it's like, this is, you're okay to go outside, was unmanageable for me. Ayahuasca very clearly said to me, like, you have to stop doing this. And, and if you don't stop doing this, your life is going to remain small. She said, it's time to retire your extra, extra small life. And I had a Holocaust visual and I saw lots of naked women about to be incinerated. And ayahuasca said, you spit in their faces, hating your body. I have given you this gift. And to learn to love this body, these thighs, this butt, this being, I was so hyper scrutinizing and so ungrateful to the gift of my body and have come to appreciate it for its outrageous faithfulness in, in my blood, in my, my lungs, in my ability to, to feel and, and to see and hear and taste and touch. And that continues, right? I, I feel sort of like I'm 85% of the way there, and like I still have 15% more to love. And another area in which I, I've also really uh, grown through these things is, is with my, my dream of, of being a mother. And as I mentioned, I'm 40 and, and my, my self-hatred from the twenties, it had me in, in not the right relations, right? With men at 40, you know, I, I think we're in a different time and, and, and I feel hopeful. And in my last ayahuasca journey, I got the message. It's not, a, it's not hope it's happening. And I've been able to see and feel the gaze of my partner. I've been able to play with my, my children. And as I mentioned earlier, these fields have validated my imagination. So even if it doesn't happen, it's as if it already did. And I can see and feel it. And, and that's real. And I want to honor that. I would want as a, a, as a mother and as a, the mother that's in me in my work to also support others in doing the same. Thematically, my journeys have also addressed my body and have supported me in making not only peace with it, but embracing it. You know, in, in my social media, I often share my meditation practice. And I, I hope that that inspires others to sit well with themselves. And I so often wrap my arms around myself and kiss my shoulders and say thank you to this gift of, of a body to have this experience called human. And, and I, I, wouldn't, I can't conceptualize arriving there without psychoactive substances.
Thank you for sharing that. I, I could hear the emotion in your voice. Um, and and Ronan, this is, this is taught to girls and women. You know, the, the currency of men is money and the currency of women is, is beauty. Of course, that's also a bunch of, I want to swear. It's, it's a bunch of, it's, it's, shit. it's, it's shit. It's, it's fucked up. And, and that, that's what we've been trained. And I, I think that this has spilled out onto men and women in both ways. And, and this, of course, applies to they, them and, and any constellation of being. But there's so much emphasis on beauty. And what I'm more interested in as, is, is the experience of beauty versus beauty as for consumption. Beauty to be consumed by someone else and, and, and designated as such through the eyes of another. It's like, how can I feel beautiful here? And the answer is yes. And as a little girl, I didn't feel that. And, and that translated into a whole lot of things in my, you know, teens and 20s. And I've learned to feel beautiful. And I've learned to embrace my, my body and my being. And, and I thank the medicines for, for, for that. And then on the back end of that, my willingness to, to integrate and to practice and to, to anchor what I, what I then experienced in the here now in the 3D dimension. Thank you for for sharing all of that. There's um, a lot that resonates with me, and again, I'm, I'm I'm unpacking. I'm giving away all the secret sauce of of the documentary a little bit, but the the insight that was in my head when I was saying like, how have I not not experienced that before? Which you'll see in the documentary is this realization that I've always felt small. Right, growing up, I I was a year ahead of myself. I'm not a big guy at the best of times, and so like my entire life, I've always felt small, which the language I learned it in, same point that you said, but it's uh, it's not like money and beauty, but uh, chauvinism turns women into sex objects and men into performance objects. Kind of the the same, different kind of the same conversation. And it's like, when you're small, how can you be a performance object, right? And so I've spent my life in a hypervigilant state trying to compensate for that. So a lot of what you said resonated very, very deeply with me. And, and I want to name too, that like, it isn't actually about vanity. It's about worthiness. And in the ways in which we're taught, these are measures of worth. And for me, it was, it was fundamentally also about safety. Like, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? And in a way that played out in, in the material realms. Like, I, I joke that I'm an interior designer. And, and, and by that, I mean of the inner realms. And I like that. So, <laughs> yeah. So playing with the form, right? As, as I mentioned, like, I'm not great at the costumes. I never liked costumes as a kid. So the theater at Burning Man is like a, a cool invitation. And for you, like the size thing, it's, it's actually, it's not a vanity thing. It's a, am I okay? It's, it's do I belong here? Totally. That very much resonates with me. Thank you for clarifying, because I think that's important. It's not about vanity. It's like, it can be perceived as vanity for sure. But the underlying issue is like, does someone have self-love and self-worth? That, that is really what's what's happening when people act vain. And so they're trying to compensate for something, I think in many cases that isn't there, or at least they don't think is there. And so that's why it's an important dialogue. Integration is is a word that gets thrown around like effing crazy in the psychedelic space. And there's no right answer. I'm of the view that integration is a lifelong experience, um, you know, and we're doing it every single day. But there's a probably a more structured format of of what integration looks like. So I'm gonna ask you, what, what does integration from an experience look like for you? And to the extent it may be different, you know, for someone who's listening. To this conversation, if they're curious about how, what's the best way to get started with integration, what, what would you suggest? Great question. I'm going to back up a few steps and just name that the concept of whiteness, I know this is a whole thing, but is responsible for erasure of indigeneity. There's no such thing as white. And within all of our traditions, we have probably medicine, men and women. And ways of being with these things that are already integrated. Our culture is disintegrated. So we don't have that already set up into our fabric for how to move an experience forward. And in the, the tribal contexts that are working with medicines, it doesn't need a word called integration because that's how their culture is already living. Now, 
for us in the, in America, or at least most of us in America, an experience can be wildly explosive and can open up so much content that needs processing, that needs support, that needs conversation, that needs care. And that's not obvious. And with all of the popularization of the psychedelics, which I'm grateful for, we're not maybe as present to that need and anticipating it as we could be. So for me, I think sending someone to an ayahuasca experience without having care on the back end can be practically cruel. People need care in in the aftermath. A good therapeutic experience has care before, during, and after. There's a continuity. And ideally with the same person or people. To me, integration is essentially about becoming whole again and recognizing the innate nature of the wholeness that already lives in you and moving forward whatever information you have. So for me, that meant throwing my, my scale away from that one journey that I was madly addicted to. For me, I have been blessed to have very clear directions from medicine experiences, but then to be able to talk about them. And of course, to, to sit with them because our experiences deserve our time and attention in the aftermath. So really allowing yourself the spaciousness after an experience to sit with, to meditate on, to write about, to dance, to listen to music, to kind of, you know, rest with. And, you know, it's a much bigger conversation, but I'm, I'm all for all psychoactive use, including the kind that people might be engaging with in order to to mismanage what's overwhelming. But when we're waving a flag of therapeutic or healing, we need support afterwards. How do we do this together rather than alone? And how do we live forward what we learn in these realms? Do you have um, specific habits that you do, like coming out of a session? Like, I I don't know you well enough, but... Wouldn't be surprised if like you have day after, you know, whenever experience, like an hour blocked off just to journal um, or to meditate or anything along those lines. Like, and maybe not, maybe it's totally fluid and you just kind of trust your gut, but what would it typically look like if there is a typical circumstances? After an experience, I give myself the, the pleasure of rest. And that can include any number of things, a hot bath, time in nature, naps, music. Music is a really, really potent tool. And I actually work with sound every morning. Uh, a lot of, you know, meditation can be super cerebral. I, I want to get dropped into my body and my heart. Like, I don't, I don't want to divorce anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm married. I'm, I'm married to my body. And, and how do we evoke the emotion, right? So, so I'll, I'll often partner with sound in my morning practice. Uh, and, and then because I have done so much good integrated work, my morning rituals and routines are also fertilized with very psychedelic experiences. Like I can trip just in the morning with nothing other than my own breath and my own being and my own sounds and my own, like I have wild, incredible visuals like regularly. Super cool. It is. That's awesome. <laughs> That's a delightful experience. I love the line married to my own body. And I think there's like really meaningful thoughts and ideas and wisdom and what you shared for people to take away. And I think that's really the important thing. And thank you for your vulnerability. Um, you know, it's important I think, that everyone start to share. I think if, if there's one thing that we could all benefit from, it's more vulnerability uh, and compassion in this world. And, and they're integrally linked. And so every time someone comes on here and shares something pretty vulnerable like you did today, it's, it's really meaningful and it, and it moves the needle in some way. So thank you. Thank you for receiving it. I'm so grateful to be here with all of you. I hope it's been supportive to the listeners. Would love to come back. And again, so good to see you. So so more you of you, please. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be in LA uh, sometime in the not too distant future, uh, actually for a project that you're also involved with that will keep under a little bit hush-hush for now, but uh, uh, I'm sure I'll see you soon. But uh, if not in person, then let's absolutely catch up uh, another time in the coming weeks. I look forward to it. I don't know about you, but to me, Burning Man and the Playa in their post-apocalyptic steampunk ways represent both the best 
and the worst of possibilities for the future of humanity. The best because it's almost impossible to meet someone who has been to the burn, who hasn't been forever and positively moved by the experience of such radical acceptance and inclusiveness, where everyone is encouraged to bring their deepest inside out. But it's also the worst because the environment at Burning Man, at least to this outsider, seems so foreign and abstract and such a radical departure from how most of us live our lives that believing it represents some aspirational goal is depressing because it is too aspirational. It requires too much change to ever be a real possibility for the rest of society. But in speaking with Lauren, my attitude has started to shift at least a little. Maybe it's the entrepreneur in me, but I like to believe that all problems can be fixed and fixed quickly. A service here, an app there, a great marketing campaign, and we can fix so many ills that afflict this world. I think many entrepreneurs think like I do. But what I realized in speaking with Lauren and understanding her family constellation approach to therapies and psychedelics is that maybe that's a bridge too far, at least for one generation. What became clear to me is that the work we are doing in psychedelics isn't only about healing the trauma of the individual, it's also healing the traumas of generations. And that's not going to happen overnight. Every step in the right direction is a step in the right direction. But we aren't going to fix, as Lauren said, everything, everywhere, all at once. That isn't the goal. That shouldn't be the goal. It can't be the goal. And maybe that hoping that we might achieve that outcome with some magic wand of legislation is not only overly ambitious, it's unrealistic. Accepting the incremental nature of it all is part of the solution. If we all stop and accept that we are on a journey, that the process in the bodies we are presently married to is part of the journey, and that the journey won't end in this generation or even probably the next, we'd be doing a lot more to make our destination than racing towards it. That, my friends, is part of the great theater of life. So let's enjoy the show as slow-paced as it might be. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page and associate producer is Macy Baker. Special thanks to our production partner, Quill, and of course, many thanks to Lauren for joining us today. To learn more about her work, visit embodiedlife.com. That's I-N-B-O-D-I-E-D-L-I-F-E.com.